Well, open your Bibles with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. And we've been here for several weeks now, and I think we'll be able to finish up next week. And we've been discussing marriage among the saints. And throughout much of this book of the Bible, we've been looking specifically at the problems that the church in Corinth has faced. And although they're not unique to them, they were very significant to them. And we've been looking at marriage over the last couple of weeks and how their unique experiences have affected the way they think about marriage. They've asked questions about this topic according to what Paul has written at the beginning of chapter 7, a response to the letter that you wrote to me, and he begins to address these issues. So last week in our exploration of God's Word, we looked at three distinct groups of people as they were outlined for us in this letter. Those who were previously married, and the term we found there was widows, and then the unmarried, and the unmarried could be considered to be widowers. It fits that it is paired with a widow, but it's called the unmarried. The word unmarried only occurs four times in the entirety of the New Testament, and all four times it's in this chapter. So there's some confusion about exactly what unmarried means, and we'll look at that more next week. So the second group of people were those who were married to believers, and then in the third group, it was those who were married to unbelievers. Now, those that were married to unbelievers were converted after they were already married, and so Paul isn't talking about instructions for how you can marry an unbeliever. Paul would say, don't do that. You're not to be unequally yoked. But in this group of those married to unbelievers, there were two distinctions that the Word outlined for us. Number one, in this arrangement, the unbelieving spouse wanted to stay in the marriage. And to these, Paul said, remaining in the marriage is a good thing. It will not bring spiritual defilement to you or your children, which apparently was a consequence that was being taught within the Corinthian church. So what they might say is, well, now that you are married to an unbeliever, you are bringing shame to the Lord, you're bringing defilement into your home, you are displeasing to the Lord, and in addition to that, your children are unclean, your children are an abomination to the Lord. And so a reasonable person would say, well, I don't want to do that. How can I fix that? So some were saying you need to get married, you need to divorce and remarry somebody else. And so Paul was speaking into this confusion and he said the opposite of defilement is actually the reality if you're married to an unbelieving spouse and they want to stay in the marriage. So the believing spouse would have the potential to have a positive spiritual influence in the home as they communicate the faithfulness of God, the goodness of God, the promises of God, as the unbelieving house sees a life changed in this relationship with God. And so that would actually bring something good into the home of unbelievers when a spouse has come to know the Lord. So the second distinction is the unbelieving spouse did not want to stay in that marriage relationship. And to these, Paul said, let them go. There is no guarantee that they would be converted through your faithful life and service to the Lord. We are called to peace, so there's no benefit in fighting with an unbelieving spouse who no longer wants to be married. Let them leave. You're no longer under bondage, which indicates that there is a biblical dissolution of the marriage bond because the unbeliever wants to leave. That would mean that this married spouse whose unbelieving spouse has left them would be free to remarry and not be guilty of adultery. 
So at the beginning of this discussion on these groups of married people, Paul set out for us a principle that we're going to look at in more detail today. He said, it would be my preference that those that are unmarried, whether in death, through death, through biblical divorce, or having never been married, would remain as he is, and that is single and celibate. So not all, not all are gifted with singleness and celibacy, and this gift doesn't make one more pleasing to God or one more acceptable to God, because after all, marriage is still pleasing to the Lord. He said, it is not good for man to be alone, therefore I will make a helper suitable for him. And in that union, he said, be fruitful and multiply. So very clearly, God is pleased with marriage, and being married does not bring more favor from God, neither does being single and celibate. Be, bring more favor from God. And so Paul is going to now drive this point home in our passage today. So he's going to outline for us this spiritual principle that is important for us and for the church in Corinth to understand. We'll pick up in verse 17, and we're going to run all the way through verse 24. Only as the Lord has assigned to each one, as God has called each, in this manner let him walk. And so I direct in all the churches. Was any man called when he was already circumcised? He is not to become uncircumcised. Has anyone been called in uncircumcision? He is not to be circumcised. Circumcision is nothing and uncircumcision is nothing. But what matters is the keeping of the commandments of God. Each man must remain in that condition in which he was called. Were you called while a slave? Do not worry about it. But if you are able also to become free, rather do that. For he who was called in the Lord while a slave is the Lord's freedman. Likewise, he who was called while free is Christ's slave. You were bought with a price. Do not become slaves of men. Brethren, each one is to remain with God in that condition in which he was called. Now, this passage of Scripture to me is a very, very important example of why it is necessary for us to interpret Scripture in the context of the book with which it is written. Now, there are applications that we can make from this passage of Scripture, but from the beginning of verse 1 all the way to the end of this chapter, Paul is talking about marriage. And so this needs to be understood and translated in the context of marriage, even though we can find other ways to apply this to our life. And we'll do that as we go through this. It'll be a very basic outline, probably among the most basic I've ever done before. So we're Roman number one is the principle stated. Verse 17 gives to us this principle. Only as the Lord has assigned to each one, as God has called, in this manner let him walk, and so I direct in all the churches. Well, some people read that and say, principle, I don't see a principle there. I see some stuff I don't really understand. And there's some stuff in here that Paul assumes his readers are going to understand, and it takes some investigation to figure out exactly what this means. So the very basic principle is this. Remain as you are. This isn't the first time Paul says this, and it's not going to be the last. His instruction is not to be preoccupied with changing your marital status after 
your salvation. So there's some things that we need to unpack that are a part of this verse. There's a phrase, as the Lord ha- as excuse me, as the Lord has assigned to each one, and it is an important part of this principle. So what this does is this speaks very generally about the sovereignty of God over everyone's life. God has assigned each one a place. So as we think about sovereignty, in general, it speaks of the rule and the reign of God over His universe. God has created all that we know, all that can be known, and in God's sovereign rule, He reigns over it from His throne in heaven. As a part of God's rule and reign, this rule and reign is executed through God's will. Now, as we talk about God's will, as it is executed under God's sovereignty, there's two ways that we need to understand God's will. Number one, we have God's intentional will. This is God's will which cannot be stopped. It will not be stopped. The prime example of that is God's perfect will, God's intentional will, for Jesus to go to the cross to die as a substitutionary sacrifice for the sin of the redeemed. So that's the prime example, but there are many other examples. For example, the exodus from Egypt. It was God's intentional will that the nation of Israel be released from slavery to Egypt, and there was not anything the Pharaoh was going to be able to do to stop that. There's also Jericho as a part of the conquest of the promised land. There was nothing Jericho could do that would defeat the Israelites and and ruling over their little part of the world. And so we know the story. They marched around the city seven times, and the the priests blew the trumpets, and the walls of the city caved in, and God's perfect will was enacted. Another example is Jonah's mission to go to Nineveh. God said, I want you to go to Nineveh. Jonah said, no, I'm not going to go. He went the opposite direction. And what happened? God said, no, no, no. My will will not be stopped. And he sent a whale who swallowed Jonah, and and swam all the way to Nineveh and threw him up on the beach. And there Jonah was in Nineveh. An example of God's intentional, perfect will that cannot be stopped by man. Now, the second way we understand God's will as it is executed under God's sovereign rule and reign is God's permissive will. Now, we often get these two mixed together in such a way that we think that everything that happened is God's perfect will. And that's just not true. So in God's permissive will, He allows for the decisions of man to exist under His sovereign rule. I think one of the worst things a Christian can say is in, in the light of a tragedy... Your family members were killed in a car accident. Your spouse died of a horrible disease. Someone said to you, well, that was God's plan. Ah, it's just not true. That's not God's plan. So if we were to say that that is true, then that would mean that it is God's plan for one and a half million babies in America to be aborted every year because it's happening. So if it happens, then it's obviously God's will, right? God wanted that to happen. No, God does not want that to happen, but God permits 
things to happen under his sovereign rule as a part of his permissive will. So, God allows man to make decisions for himself, right? And we like to celebrate that, the free will of man. I get to go where I want, when I want, how I want, as long as I want, and nobody can stop me. That's just what we want to celebrate, as Americans especially, but as people in general. So when we seek God for guidance and direction, we sometimes have an overwhelming sense of what God wants us to do. And we make that decision as best we can. Sometimes we seek God for direction and guidance, and we're not really sure what God wants us to do. And so we make the best decision that we can in the moment under the circumstances that we have to make that decision. Sometimes we don't seek God at all, and we just make decisions for ourselves. In each of these scenarios, these decisions may not be His perfect will, but He allows it as a part of His permissive will, and these decisions are made under His sovereign rule, and God has chosen not to stop them. So all of that to say this, the church in Corinth finds themselves and marital situations that have existed under God's permissive will, they may not have been God's perfect will, and now they're having issues over where they find themselves because of the talk, the teaching, the quote-unquote truth that's being applied to their lives. So they're hearing people say, you shouldn't be married to that person, or you should be celibate now, or you should get divorced to marry a believer. They're hearing all of this scent, all of this noise, and they don't really know what the right thing to do is. So in the sense of God's permissive will, He has assigned them to this position in life. Unmarried, which generally applies to anyone not currently married, married to a believer, or married to an unbeliever. This was their position in life when God called them to salvation. And this is reflected in the phrase that we see here, as God has called each. God called them to salvation. And the position in life that they are currently in, as a part of God's permissive will, under His sovereign rule. So as we hear the phrase, God's calling, we already know that it's been established, that refers to their call to salvation. Paul began in 1 Corinthians 1 with this understanding about the calling. 1 Corinthians 1-2 To the church of God which is at Corinth, to those who have been sanctified in Christ Jesus, saints by calling, with all who in every place call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. So you don't become a saint because you ascribe to some kind of a moral code. You don't become a saint because you're faithful to go to church. You become a saint because you've been saved by the sacrifice of Christ. Paul will go on to say in 1 Corinthians 1.9, God is faithful through whom you were called into fellowship with the Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. So fellowship here, calling into fellowship, is called into the salvation relationship where God is our Father and we are His children, and that only happens when we are saved. So the church at Corinth were called to salvation and their current marital status, and Paul's instruction is to them, remain as you are, which is communicated in the phrase, in this manner, let them walk. 
So you are to live your life in the position that you're currently in as you were saved, as you have lived your life under God's permissive will as a part of His sovereign rule. So whatever your marital status is at the time you are saved, continue to live in that situation. So remembering that there were numerous groups and parties and factions and sources of truth that the Corinthian church had allowed to infiltrate their teaching, there were some who were encouraging those with the gift of celibacy and singleness to get married because that was more pleasing to God. Others were being encouraged who were married to become celibate. That brings more honor in your life, and God is more pleased with that. So they were seriously concerned that they needed to change their marital status so that their life would be more pleasing to God. Paul says that's not the way it is at all. Remain as you are. As a capstone to this conversation, he is saying that salvation does not require a change in your marital status. Now, the very last part of what we see in verse 17 is that Paul says this is not a unique thing to you, church in Corinth. I teach this in all the churches. So the principle is not unique to the church at Corinth. The principle is to be shared amongst all of the churches, and that is remain in the marital state that you are in at the time you were converted. Now we'll apply this principle in just a few minutes into other parts of our life. So Paul provides an example to explain this rationale of why it is not necessary to change your marital status to be more pleasing to God or to be more acceptable to God. So example one relates to racial identity. Verse 18. Was any man called when he was already circumcised? He is not to become uncircumcised. Has anyone been called in uncircumcision? He is not to be circumcised. So very clearly, Paul is teaching upon the racial distinction between Jew and Gentile. And the example is very clear. If one was saved as a Jew, he should not be uncircumcised in an effort to be more pleasing to God. Now, circumcision was considered an embarrassment within the Roman Empire. Long before the time of Christ and the time of Paul, circumcision was something within the Roman Empire that was looked upon with great disdain and was a source of embarrassment to those who happened to be circumcised, which, by the way, was unique to the Jewish population. That was a part of their racial identity. God instructed them, to be the males to be circumcised as a part of their being set apart as his unique people in the world. Now, I was not aware of this. Historians tell of a period in Jewish history where Jewish men who wanted to be accepted into Greek society actually had a surgical procedure performed to make them appear uncircumcised when they were in the gymnasiums exercising or bathing. Now, we forget this, but when you went to the Roman gym, you did all your stuff naked. And so if you were circumcised, it was very obvious, and Jewish men who did not want that distinction went through a surgical procedure to look like they weren't circumcised. They were literally uncircumcised surgically. And Paul says, 
Don't do that. I mean, <laughs> don't do that. And there's spiritual reasons for that, right? It isn't necessary to change your racial identity as a Jew once you've been saved. Jews are not to give up their racial identity when they become Christians in order to appear to look like the Gentiles. While their religious beliefs must change, their racial or cultural identity does not need to change. So Paul says... It's not necessary to be uncircumcised in order to be more pleasing or more acceptable to God. Now, the same thing is true for the Gentiles. The Gentiles who are saved in their state of being a Gentile are not to go out and now get circumcised in an effort to be more acceptable or more pleasing to God. They are not to take on the Jewish customs or the Jewish practices to secure special blessing or special favor from God because, as Paul says, as a part of this principle, racial identity is meaningless at the cross or after the cross. We would do well to remember that. It doesn't matter who you are, there is no barrier that would prevent you to come to the cross. It doesn't matter who you are, after you've experienced the reality of the cross, you're not to change who you are by the color of your skin or your ethnic identity. None of that is going needs to change because all of that is meaningless. He explains this now in verse 19. Circumcision is nothing. And uncircumcision is nothing. But what matters is the keeping of the commandments of God. So for a Jew to hear Paul say circumcision is nothing, they would probably go, what? What? What do you mean it's nothing? This defines me. This is my identity. This is my ancestry. This is what paves for me a special place in the heart and the mind of God. And Paul says, no, it doesn't. It's nothing. It means nothing. The flip side is true. Uncircumcision is nothing. If you were a Gentile, and oh, by the way, in the mind of the Jew, if you were not a Jew, you were at best a barbarian. Remember that in Jesus' day, when a Jew would encounter a Gentile in the public square, they would go into their home and they would perform a ceremonial cleansing to rid themselves of the defilement that they have experienced at the hands of the dreaded Gentiles. So Paul says, to be uncircumcised is nothing. And the Jew might go, what? What do you mean by that? And the Greek would say, really? That's not what we've heard. That's not what we've been told. So in Corinth, the practice of circumcision probably was taught to have some kind of a special blessing or some kind of special favor that would come from God and circumcision was a mark of that special favored status. But circumcision is not necessary for salvation or for blessing from God. It has no spiritual significance or value for Christians at all. Zero. That's why Paul would say circumcision is nothing. 
Jews, for Jews who want to appear as Gentiles, or Gentiles to subscribe to the things that were unique to Jews, both spiritually and practically, are wrong. It's spiritually wrong because it adds an outward custom to the gospel that salvation does not require. And it's practically wrong because those things would potentially separate you from your family and your friends and would hinder your ability to witness to them. So if, for example, you were a Gentile and you thought it was necessary to be circumcised, there were probably people in your family or in your sphere of friendship that would say, man, you're crazy, I want nothing to do with you anymore. You've identified yourself something I just can't get to. And the reverse would be true. So it's spiritually and practically wrong to do that because spiritually it's not necessary and practically it may create a barrier in witnessing with other people. Now, remembering that Paul is using this as an example related to the thought or to the felt need of changing my marital status because I am now saved. Changing marital status after salvation does not bring God's blessing or favor. What does? Well, Paul tells us, doesn't doesn't he? Obedience. Obedience is what matters. Circumcision, uncircumcision, that stuff doesn't matter. All that really matters is obedience. Obedience is the only mark of faithfulness the Lord recognizes. And obedience does bring God's favor and God's blessing. Now, for the sake of time, I didn't go through this. But if you read your Bible, you will see that the majority of promises that are in God's Word require some kind of faithful response on our part. If you want this blessing, then you must do this. Do you want to know the peace of God? Do you want to experience that in your heart? Then what what does the Word tell us to do? It tells us to pray. Tells us to pour out our hearts before the Lord. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will be yours. So many of the promises of God require some act of faithfulness or obedience on our part. Now, obedience is sometimes very costly, but it is always possible, and we can be obedient anywhere and in any circumstance, even though we may pay a price for that obedience. Now, number two in our outline... Not very profound, but it's the principle repeated. This is so important that Paul's going to say this again. Verse 20, each man must remain in that condition in which he was called. Now, we don't need to go back and reiterate what's already been said. Paul repeats what he's already said. Remain as you are. And here he gives a different example as to why you are to remain as you were at the moment of your salvation. And that example two relates to social identity. Verse 21a. Were you called while a slave? Do not worry about it. Now, anytime we talk about slavery within the New Testament, it creates a lot of challenges because of the way we understand that and the way we perceive it. First of all, slavery is never condoned or condemned in Scripture. It's just a part of the culture in which the Bible was written. Scripture does not call for social revolution to change slavery, but the reality is that in, in, in periods of, of extreme Christian obedience, 
things like slavery have been changed. So Paul is not condoning slavery. Paul is not saying that it's a good condition to be in, or it's not a big deal at all. Remember, he's making an example as it relates to marriage. So social identity as a free man or as a slave is secondary at the cross and after the cross. Now, a part of what we don't recognize is that in the Roman Empire, nearly 50% of the population was in some form of slavery. Think about that. Nearly half of the people that lived during the Roman Empire were enslaved in some way to the Romans, whether it be um, an occupied territory and you were brought back to a land not your own. Uh, there was debtor's prison that required you to be in servitude until a certain period of time or until you could pay the debt. Some were born into a family that served as slaves. There are many, many different reasons. Some slaves were educated and well-treated. Some slaves looked after the children as a, as a nanny of sorts. Some taught the children so that the parents who were well-to-do could do other things. Some of these slaves were illiterate and were very poorly treated. Paul's point is this. Even if a person is a slave, he is able to live a Christian life and is every bit as able to obey and serve Christ in his state of slavery as is one who is free. No circumstance, no matter how terrible, painful, or unjust, can keep us from being a Christian in every sense of what that means. Now, slaves had a unique opportunity to serve Christ in incredibly difficult circumstances. Now, as an example to the way Paul treated slavery, a lack of condemnation, a lack of condoning, but as an example to those who were slaves and were converted... He would say this to the Ephesian church in Ephesians 6, verses 5 through 8. Slaves, be obedient to those who are your masters according to the flesh, with fear and trembling in the sincerity of your heart as to Christ, not by way of eye service as men pleasers, but as slaves of Christ doing the will of God from the heart. With good will, render service as to the Lord and not to men, knowing that whatever good thing each one does... This he will receive back from the Lord, whether slave or free. Now, we can't imagine how difficult it must have been to be in slavery and to hear this kind of teaching from an apostle. Paul says, be obedient, not with your eyes, don't just look the part, but be obedient from the heart. God sees that, and God will reward that. He will give this back to you. Whether you're a free man or a slave, our obedience to Christ from the heart is recognized and rewarded by God. Now remember, this is an example of why it isn't necessary to change your marital status after salvation. So unlike circumcision, Paul gives the slave permission for a change in status if that becomes possible, verse 21b. But if you are able also to become free... Rather do that. Now, slave and freedom had no connection in anyone's understanding to salvation, but for a Jew and a Gentile, circumcision may have had some part in what they understood as a requirement for salvation. So, freedom is immeasurably better than slavery, but a Christian is not more spiritual for staying in slavery. 
You may sometimes think that, you know, those that endure great hardship for Christ in their service, whether as a missionary or as a minister or as a, as a uh, solo Christian in their home, well, you must be super spiritual to be able to do that. No, you're not any more spiritual. You're not better. You're just being asked to serve the Lord in different circumstances. And in every circumstance, we have the ability to be completely obedient to Christ. So for the slave, if he has opportunity to become free, as did many slaves in the New Testament period, Paul says, and you should take advantage of that. There's nothing wrong with you finding freedom and taking advantage of that if it were to come to you. So Paul was never a slave, as we understand what that means. But Paul spent a considerable amount of time in jail because of the gospel, and he conducted a great deal of his ministry while in prison. By the way, the majority of the letters that Paul wrote, he wrote while he was in prison. So Paul, while not a slave, understands what it means not to be a free man, He understands what it means to not have any individual rights. And it is in this context that Paul would say to himself and to the slave, be be obedient to the Lord from the heart. This is why Paul would say in verse 22a, For he who was called in the Lord while a slave is the Lord's free man. One who is saved while a physical slave is actually Christ's freed man, free to serve him, free to obey him, and free to please him in every way. And as bad and unjust as human slavery it is, it does not compare to the spiritual bondage that every person experiences to sin. We are in bondage to sin from the moment we are born until we come to know Christ. That bondage to sin brings us death. It brings us separation from God. It brings punishment. It brings eternal separation from God. All are born into the slavery. And it is Christ who makes us spiritually free. Christ freed man, free from sin, free from Satan, free from condemnation, and free from hell. So to keep Christians who were physically free from thinking that they were more favored by God than the slaves, or that their freedom meant license to do as they pleased, Paul reminds them in verse 22, likewise, he who was called while free is Christ's slave. Now remember, the very beginning of this new section, Paul began the topic of Christian liberty or Christian freedom that applies to freedom For salvation, not freedom to live how you want, the way you want, to do what you want. And we'll pick that up as we get into chapter 8 in much greater detail. Our freedom is not to do what we want. It's not freedom to sin, but it's freedom from sin. Not freedom to do our own will, but freedom to do His will. And when we were in bondage to sin... We had no capacity to do His will. We had no idea what His will even was. But now that we've been saved, we've been freed to do His will. Paul would say this to the church in Romans in, in, verse, in chapter 6, 22. But now having been freed from sin and enslaved to God, you derive your benefit resulting in sanctification and the outcome, eternal life. Whether physically free or enslaved, 
All believers boast of the same reality, and that is what we see in verse 23. You were bought with a price. Do not become slaves of men. So our salvation comes at the cross of it comes at the cost of Christ. First Peter 1, 18 and 19. Knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your fathers, but with precious blood as of the Lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. We weren't saved with perishable things, neither were we saved by performing external acts of righteousness like circumcision or anything else but we were saved with the precious blood of Christ. We have been bought by God. We belong to God. And when Paul talks about becoming the slaves of men, he's not talking about physical slavery. He's talking about slavery of the ways of men, slavery to the ways of the world. And the Corinthian believers had followed the worldly wisdom of men and the teaching of men. And the result was that they were embroiled in divisions and strife. They were immature. They were conducting lives of immorality. And so as it relates to the subject of marriage, they were seeking to divorce and remarry in hopes that this would bring favor or find increased blessing from God. And so in the third time in this passage, Paul says in verse 24, Brethren, each one is to remain with God in that condition in which he was called. So what Paul says is this, Remain as you are upon your salvation. God allows us to be where we are and to stay where we are for a purpose. So when you're converted, you don't need to change your marital status in order to find favor or pleasure in the heart of God. If you are an electrician or a plumber or an engineer or a doctor or a farmer or a homemaker or anything else, you don't need to change your profession after you're saved in order to become more pleasing to God. Now, if you're in a job that requires you to be exposed to gross immorality or unethical behavior, well, then you probably need to change that. If you're a student and you're saved, you don't, need to, you don't need to leave your school and go to a Christian college because you think that brings more favor to you from God. We are to remain as we are when we are saved because God will choose to use us in that position we are in for purposes that we may not yet understand. So conversion is not the signal for a person to leave his social condition, his marriage or his singleness, his human master, or any other circumstance. Instead, we are to leave sin and anything that encourages sin. Otherwise, we are to stay where we are until God moves us. So if you're a doctor and God calls you to ministry, then you don't want to be a doctor anymore. If you're a student and God calls you to be in ministry in some form or fashion, then you need to go wherever you can get that training. Obedience is what brings pleasure to God. Not our marital status, not our singleness and celibacy, not any other external thing. It is just who we are in our heart of hearts as we try to live out the calling of our salvation the best way that we can. That is what God is pleased with. Pray with me, would you please? 
Father, we give you thanks for the way your word brings us back to the main thing. The main thing isn't the external stuff. The main thing is the heart that has been changed through salvation. Father, how we thank you for the gift that salvation is to us. And that just as we are, you saved us where we were. And even for those who are saved in conditions and positions of life that are clearly not pleasing to you, you still love them and save them. And it is through our outward obedience to you that stems from a changed life and a changed heart that we bring you pleasure, that we bring you the glory and the honor that you desire. Father, I pray that you would continue to strip away from us this works righteousness mentality that we have, but that we would instead have a biblical understanding of righteousness, which is obedience. Father, thank you for loving us through this journey, as imperfect as we are, as often as we fail, your mercy and your grace continue to cover us and provide for us what we need. We thank you that you love us with an everlasting love and that you are patient and kind with us as we struggle to live out our Christianity in these very difficult days. Father, we pray that our heart's desire, first and foremost, would be to please you with the lives that we live, not so we get something from you, but just because of who you are and what you've done for us in Christ. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand. Let's sing to him.